Hello and welcome to Pocket Therapist. I'm your host, Dr. Adam Moore, licensed marriage and family therapist. I'm going to teach you everything I've learned over the last 13 years as a therapist to help maximize the value you get out of your relationships. I cannot believe I made it to episode 10. Not not because I, you know, usually stop things that I start, but it just seems crazy to get into double digits for me. That's ridiculous, you guys, but I get excited about, you know, the littlest of things in life. So today what I'm going to do is really completely different than everything I've done so far. And in fact, we're going to have all kinds of changes happening in the podcast because that's how I roll is I like to surprise people. So today what I'm going to do is called rapid fire. I'm going to answer three questions I've gotten from email and social media. And I have not uh, prepared at all. In fact, I've, I'm only vaguely aware of what the questions even are. So I'm going to look at them and just go shoot from the hip. And this is going to really test my skills. This is the type of skill set that I have to use as a therapist in my therapy sessions because I don't have time to script and, to, and say, hey, let me, let me get back in a few hours once I've written down what I'm going to say to you. So it's going to be totally different and uh, should be fun and exciting. So here we go. Rapid fire three questions. Number one, my husband had multiple affairs. How do I deal with the trauma of seeing these women, even though it's been many years since the affairs? Therapy has not helped. And she also mentions that she lives in a small town, so she's going to see these people wherever she goes. Okay. First thing, I'm just going to talk as if I'm speaking to you directly. That's going to be the easiest way to do this. I think if it's been that many years and you've done therapy on it, uh, I don't want to, you know, bash your therapist or anything like that. I don't know them. I don't know what kind of therapy you did, but certainly there, I think there's more work to be done here. My opinion is that this is trauma. So if that much time has passed, there's still something very traumatic about, uh, I think probably the meaning of the affairs. And there's two things that come into my mind. First one is that the affairs violated some kind of code that women either do have or should have with each other. And the code is we don't mess with each other's relationships. We respect the fact that when another woman gets into a relationship with a man, that we leave that person alone. We leave the guy alone and we leave the relationship alone. And in fact, we give them a thumbs up as they pass and we want the relationship to to succeed because why would we want to get in the way of someone else's relationship? That either is or should be a code among women. Okay. And I think I, I suspect that you would agree with that statement. And I think part of the trauma is that this absolutely violated the code. You know, these other women, and I don't know anything about them or your husband or any, any of that, but they somehow internally gave themselves permission to, you know, participate in destroying a relationship. Now, we don't know what he said to them. We have, you know, there's so much uh, lack of data here, but... So I suspect that there's part of you that is thinking, I would never, ever do that to another relationship. I would never betray another woman like that. It's hard to wrap your head around the fact that somebody would do that. And I think there's some of that going on there. It's like you need a redemption of either these particular women specifically or just women in general. I need to I need to come to believe that I can trust that other women will have my back or that could have my back or, or however that is. 
I think that's a big deal right there. If that has not been explored in a therapeutic context, I think it absolutely needs to be. The other thing is, and I think this is related, it's about feeling safe in the world. You know, to discover that the person that you committed to, the person that you believed had committed to you, would go off then and have multiple affairs. This isn't one affair. This is multiple affairs is just a complete betrayal of the entire system of human trust, right? Because when we get into a relationship, when we make that commitment to a monogamous long-term relationship, uh, you know, when we get married, there's certain assumptions that we make about how that relationship is going to go. And at least in the culture that we live in here in the United States, and I think in most cultures throughout the world, that that commitment is... I'm not going to invite somebody else into the relationship that we're not going to involve other people to that degree or, you know, that level of intimacy, closeness, connection, vulnerability, etc. When that gets violated, especially if you grew up really holding on tight to this idea that this relationship would be the one that would, you know, change your life, save your life, whatever it was, when that gets violated, when that gets broken, it is so difficult for, for many people to wrap their heads around it. And it's difficult for many people to even reconsider the idea of trust in relationships again. To see these women over and over and over again is just a continual reminder that you're unsafe relationally in the world and that trying to rely on people or institutions' commitments is foolish or some people will say I'm stupid I shouldn't have trusted these people or how can I even how can I even function in a world where I I can't know whether a person is trustworthy trustworthy or not with all of that said I think you know first of all standard talk therapy often doesn't really dig into some of this stuff you know, a, a typical talk therapy is going to say, okay, let's let's work toward um, forgiveness or let's tell the story of the trauma. Um, let's talk about whether you, you know, maybe a cognitive behavioral approach is going to say, is it reasonable or rational to think that, you know, everybody will betray you or, you know, it's, it's almost like it's going to try to um, convince you that your thinking or your fears or all that is wrong, which is why I'm not a huge fan of cognitive behavioral therapy, but maybe that's a topic for another day. So I think, you know, the real issue here is, did I dig deep enough into the meaning I made out of the affairs, the meaning I made about my husband, the meaning I made about the other women, the meaning I made about trust in general, the meaning I made about myself? That's something I think you really want to dig deep into if you haven't, and maybe you did in therapy, but, you know, if I were your therapist, I would probably dig even deeper. How did you interpret the affairs in terms of your value as a human being, your ability to capture the attention of other people, to be worthy of love, to matter, all of that kind of stuff? And did the affairs then strike... uh, you know, fear into the heart of the little girl inside of you that maybe has always been afraid that you were unlovable and this just confirmed it. And as soon as, you know, maybe you had some early childhood experiences that said, hey, um, you're probably going to get abandoned and people don't really like you that much. 
because this is the way they treat you and it's not good. And then you thought the marriage was going to save you and then it didn't. And then those two uh, points uh, created a line or those multiple points created a line. And the line that went through the points said, I really am unworthy of love. It, you know, if that's what's going on, then absolutely it, it makes perfect sense that you're still stuck. You know, even in the context of doing uh, EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, which is one of the most well-known and beloved uh, trauma treatments in the mental health community, I think even EMDR is going to fall short. Um, and if you haven't done EMDR, then you, in my opinion, you absolutely must do EMDR. But I think even EMDR is going to fall short in this area because EMDR uh, won't necessarily dig deep uh, on an intellectual level, which I think really needs to be done in addition to the emotional work, the subconscious work. Uh, dig deep into that intellectual level about how do I make a choice about reinstating new beliefs about who I am and my worthiness and my place in the world. Okay, question number two. In a previous episode of the podcast, you mentioned trying to associate something good with painful memories. I tried to do that for years. When we lived out of the country, uh, my husband was connecting with other women, which made me feel betrayed. I tried to tell myself that we were making friends and having adventures, so I tried to concentrate on, on that and ignore the pain. Can you give a concrete example of how to separate out the good from the bad memories? Okay, this is a, this is a tough question because there's a lot going on here, so I'll, just, I'll do my best. Um, I, I think that the challenge is that sometimes people try to delude themselves into, into believing that something that really is uh, bad, <laughs> painful, problematic is fine. It's not a big deal. It's really fine. You know, whatever I deserved it or um, we'll make it through this. But really, if you're being completely honest with yourself, you're in a ton of pain. You're upset. You're angry. All of that. Right. So some people in this context struggle because they don't actually feel like they have permission to be honest about how they feel. Like they grew up in a family that said your feelings have to be filtered and sen uh, censured. Is that a word? <laughs> it's so late. I don't even, I might be making up a word right there. I, I think you get it. I think you get what I mean. Um, you know, your feelings have to be filtered through um, this complex process that makes sure that at the end, you don't hurt anybody's feelings with your feelings, something like that. So that's one possibility. The other possibility is this fear of abandonment. Like, I'm so afraid that if I, you know, flip the wrong switches or push the wrong buttons in the relationship, if I say the wrong things, then I'm going to get abandoned. So I have to stuff everything down to try to keep this relationship alive. And then I have to start telling myself stories about, um, you know, that things are really better than they are. I have to invent, uh, you know, excuses or explanations for the other person's behavior. And, you know, that becomes its own set of problems as well. So to me, the question is more about how can you be fully honest with yourself? How can you be honest with yourself about which parts were truly usable, helpful, and, you know, something that you opted into versus which parts were extremely painful and, you know, things that, that do need to get addressed, confronted, all of that. Now, let's say that you have confronted this in the relationship. You have communicated that these parts were painful, but somehow they're all still sort of intermingled. 
I don't know, in, in right now, at least as thinking about this with the information I have, I don't know that this is as much um, about what I talked about earlier as it is about something completely different. So I'm just going to take you down a different path right now. In my mind, this is about uh, at least two things. First one is self-validation. How can I get to a point where I love and accept myself? I validate my own experiences such that even if other people don't validate them for me, even if other people think, oh, you know, or they say to me, you're crazy or you shouldn't feel that way or you're, you're over the top or whatever, that I can accept my own experience as valid and real. I can still listen to the feedback from other people. It's not like I want to shut out feedback, right? Because um, my experience can be valid and real and I might be having a reaction that may be, you know, over the top or abnormal or needs to be addressed in some way. So I want to, I want to carefully, you know, work toward this ability to say I trust myself, Okay. And that is, that's a big challenge for so many people because self-validation has to come from a place of self-trust. If you don't trust yourself, then you can't validate yourself because what will happen is you will always second-guess your feelings, you'll second-guess your opinions, you'll second-guess your, your thoughts, your interpretations. And so the question, of course, that you're going to be asking yourself right now is, well, how do I work towards self-trust? And that is, that's a tough question. And again, shooting from the hip here, I would say, you know, probably a few things we want to be focusing on. One of them is looking back at the data points in your life uh, at at times in which you actually were able to trust yourself, that your intuition or your instincts were right. You know, look back back at those times when you said, this is what I think is going on. And then the data played out later to say, yeah, you were absolutely right on that. If you can put together enough of those in a row, again, thinking about the concept of data points in a line, you can draw a line through those data points and say, I actually have some pretty good evidence that my intuition is really quite good. Maybe it's not perfect. Maybe all of my interpretations all the time are not exactly right on, but there's enough data points that say, if I get a funny vibe about something, or if I get a feeling like I need to behave or act or say, or whatever, uh, in in a certain way, then I can rely on that because the past predicts the future and the past says that uh, that my intuition is good enough. And I think good enough is really important because a lot of times people go, well, it's not perfect. And sometimes I make mistakes. Well, great. You're human. You know, welcome to the club. Uh, it, you don't have to be perfect at interpreting things or, 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 you know, predicting things to trust yourself. If you have, uh, you know, a decent enough track record, that's worth paying attention to. So that's the first thing about self-trust is looking at the past. I think the next part of this is about accountability and self-forgiveness. So if I'm going to trust myself, I also have to be accountable for when I make mistakes. So toward myself and toward others. So if I if I make a mistake in interpreting something, if I make a mistake in predicting something, I can go back and say, "Hey, that was an error. I made a mistake. I'm going to I'm going to shift that. I'm going to change that. I'm going to take accountability. I'm going to make amends where where need be." But then the, the, the huge issue that people run into is they automatically go, well, I'm an idiot and I should never trust myself again. So treat yourself like a good friend would. And a good friend would say, you know what? We all make mistakes, but that doesn't mean you are a mistake, right? Whatever we would say to a good friend. And, and you can keep trusting yourself. So treat yourself, uh, you know, or talk to yourself the way that a good friend would talk to you or that you would uh, talk to a good friend, Okay. And be kind to yourself 
and don't assume that that an individual mistake you make is uh, an indictment is a you know an indicator that you can never rely on your own intuition again for the rest of your life once you get to that point where you really truly trust yourself then i think you have to allow for that little voice that's been inside you all of the time that says you are worthy you are acceptable and even when those around you that you're supposed to be able to rely on and trust, even when they betray you, because big or small, we are all going to be betrayed by our loved ones. I mean, that is a fact. And we should talk about that another day because I think that's really important. Somebody remind me, message me and remind me that we should talk about dealing with uh, guaranteed betrayal in all intimate relationships. So I'm going to, I'm going to trust you, my dearest listeners to somebody to remind me because my memory is so horrible when you begin to trust yourself, you can trust that there is this little voice that has been reminding you that you are enough, that you are acceptable, that you are worthy, that you have been ignoring. You've been pushing it down, shoving it aside, finding evidence that it is wrong. Okay. Maybe because you were afraid to, that, that it meant that you were egotistical or narcissistic, that you would actually like yourself or something like that. Or that there was enough evidence going against you, that your, your worthiness, you know, enough evidence going against your worthiness that you couldn't possibly come up with a good enough argument to, to convince yourself or others that you actually were worthy. You know, sometimes it's safer to play small. Sometimes it's safer to act like we're, you know, unlovable because then, you know, we don't have to, you know, prove, prove that we are lovable if evidence comes out to the contrary. So, Whatever of that is going on, I think you've got to work toward that and trust that part of you that says you are enough. Okay, that's my initial thought on that. I, there's a whole bunch more to be done there uh, in that area, but that's probably where I would spend that time. Then, with the other elements that you were telling yourself were okay, well, it's fine that this is happening because whatever, whatever stories, we're going to call that denial. We're going to call that denial meaning a self-protective mechanism, not denial like you're a bad person. Denial like you're trying to mentally cope so you don't lose your mind. One thing I like to do about denial is I like to thank denial and be appreciative before we try to dismiss it and send it out of the room and say, hey, denial, you're such a jerk. Why did you do this to me? Don't do that. Instead, just be appreciative because denial kept you mentally sane in a time period where if you did not have that denial, you might have lost your mind. You might have ended up in a padded room somewhere, right? At least metaphorically. We want to thank denial for saving you. I mean, we know this about, for example, people who experience extreme excruciating trauma can actually develop what we call dissociative identity disorder, which used to be called multiple personality disorder. And dissociative identity disorder, or DID, is a self-protective mechanism, right? If I can dissociate myself uh, so uh, intensely from a traumatic event or experience that it actually feels like it happened to someone else, then I can keep myself sane, right? Because I can compartmentalize that to another person's life. And that is a survival mechanism. And we have to be grateful for it because otherwise people would have full psychotic breaks or we don't know what would happen, right? But, but that's a survival mechanism. It's the same mechanism, I think, that comes into play when you get into a major car accident where you just black out. You don't feel, you don't think, you don't remember. You know, things disappear. It's all for survival and self-protection. Uh, so we want to be grateful to the denial for protecting you, protecting your mind. 
But then once we're out of that situation, you know, when you're no longer in danger, when you're no longer legitimately being threatened, and sometimes our minds don't know the difference, by the way, between being in danger now and just remembering being in danger or perceiving that we might become in danger or come, you know, we might get to a point where we are in danger or that we could be in danger. So that's a whole other topic for another day is assessing relational threats or mental threats. So somebody else remind me about that, assessing threats. That would be a really cool episode as well. I'm like, I'm, I'm blocking out like months of podcasts right here, but only if you remind me, because otherwise I'm going to forget. And then it's going to go into the ether somewhere. Some, someone else, someone else will pick it up. There's a book called uh, Big Magic. And in Big Magic, the, the idea is if a cool idea comes to you, you better grab onto it and do something about it because the idea has its own life. And it's going to, if you don't take it, it's going to go to somebody else and they're going to steal it. <laughs> so that's how I'm feeling right now. Big Magic's hitting me. So once you've been grateful for denial, which you may have to do a half a dozen times or a dozen or two dozen times, or maybe every time you start to process it, then at some point you can say to denial. I mean, I would just talk to it. Say, thank you so much for being there for me and keeping me from losing my mind. Um, You're no longer relevant today. You're no longer helpful. In fact, you're actually kind of getting in the way. I love you, but you're going to need to go. Okay. And I just need to deal with the reality of what's going on. And the reality is that if my husband is talking to other women, there's absolutely nothing okay with it. I'm not going to be okay. I'm not going to tell myself a story. I just have to admit that that is a problem and I'm going to confront it. Okay. And again, if you're confronting it in a healthy, calm, you don't always have to be calm, but at some point you do have to, you do need to arrive at calm. You can't always be freaking out. But if I can eventually get to calm and I can say, I'm not okay with this. I need to set some boundaries. We need to have some conversations. That's great. If you're always panicked, then again, I would come back to this idea of trauma that I have unresolved trauma. I've got to work through that. I've got to confront the trauma through a therapeutic process or whatever it may be. Uh, Otherwise, this is going to keep coming back forever. And in a lot of ways, you know, people don't really start healing from trauma until they have admitted that it's trauma, confronted it directly, called it out for what it is, and started, you know, intentionally trying to, we say this in therapy a lot, work through it. You know, what, what the heck does work through it mean? Well, it means feeling it, experiencing it, thinking about it, discussing it thinking about alternate ways to think about it. I mean, they're, they're, I could go on and on about that, but that means that's working through it as opposed to avoiding it, hoping it'll go away, whatever. Hopefully that was sufficiently specific, even though it was kind of all over the map. Question three, last question for this episode. I battle chronic fatigue, and I felt strongly that I should go back to school. I'm also the mom to three kids. How do you determine when you should rest for self-care and or when you should push through because you have the motivation and desire to do it, but you're just so tired. I'm lost on this one. I'm trying, but I'm fizzling out fast. This is a super great question. In fact, you may not know this, but I actually used to specialize in chronic illness and, and particularly chronic illness as it relates to uh, relationships, right? So marriage relationships before I started focusing on um, sexual addiction, compulsive behaviors, that kind of stuff. So let me tell you what I know about chronic fatigue and chronic illness. First thing, super important, is you'll probably never differentiate between the element of the chronic illness that is caused by straight up just physiological issues with your body 
and the element of the chronic fatigue or illness that is caused by trauma. I remember meeting with a gastroenterologist one time, and he said, 80% of my patients have nothing physiologically, physically wrong with their bodies. There's something emotional, mental, relational going on. 80%, this is 8 out of 10 people that are going to see this gastroenterologist for gastrointestinal issues. 80% of them have nothing that he can do anything about. So he was like, I need a place to send all of these people for therapy because that's what they need, not whatever the gastroenterologist does. I have no idea what they do, but surgeries and I don't know, stuff like that. You can't be an expert on every topic in the universe, although I would love to be. Uh, And if I ever live infinity on planet Earth, like I turn into a vampire and I never die or something, do vampires die? (laughs) Like, where's that Stephanie vampire lady, Twilight girl, when I need her to explain the vampire lore to me? If I ever do that, you know, apart from starting to eat people, which would make me really dangerous, uh, I am going to totally get into every career, every profession. I'm going to get like 8 million PhDs because I think it would be so awesome to know something about everything. But anyway, wow, that's what happens when I am unscripted, you guys. I can, I go all over the map. So hopefully this is not too weird for you. I got people like exiting the podcast like, yeah, that was a good one until he started talking about Twilight and then I just had to go. The, the reason I'm saying that you will never know is because I think a lot of people spend much of their time when they're, you know, plagued with chronic illness, chronic fatigue, chronic pain, trying to figure out what's going on, the root of the problem. And I got to tell you, I think that is an infinite chase that will actually create more problems for you. I get it. You know, it's about trying to create a sense of control because chronic illness, chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, all those things, they just feel absolutely out of control. It's like it can hit you and you have no way to predict it. And people try so hard to figure out how to predict it, right? Maybe if I change my sleep, maybe if I change my eating habits, maybe if I, you know, work on my marriage, maybe if I, whatever. And it's like this perpetual obsession almost with trying to solve the problem. So my first statement would be practice surrendering to the illness. I know this seems absolutely paradoxical. It seems like the opposite of everything you want to do, which is usually why it's right. You know, I always tell my therapy clients, if if where we're going feels completely wrong and like you really don't want to do it, then I know we're going in the right direction. I mean, people hate that, but it's just a fact. So surrendering to the illness would mean not trying to fight it and win and just accepting it's something that is part of my life. It's probably always going to be there, you know, like if, as if I had lost a limb or something like that, like I I can't will myself to grow another one back. It's just going to be how it is. I can accept that I may never be able to know the magic formula of, of fixing it forever. And I can just allow myself to live with that as a part of my life. That actually for many people begins to relieve some of the stress of having the chronic illness because instead of, you know, trying to figure out the magic formula, you just go, oh, today's one of those days where I just am not going to get as much done and other people may not get it. And that's okay. I surrender to it. I'm just letting go of all of that. So I think that's extremely important. And, you know, if you're looking for uh, tips and tools on surrendering and letting go, 12-step groups, I think are so important. And, you know, you don't have to show up and pretend you have an addiction or whatever. 
just show up to a 12-step group and say, I'm powerless over chronic fatigue. And I think that would be super helpful. The next component of it is also very you know, related. And that's the idea of surrender, uh, you know, surrendering the outcome of your life. You know, here I am a few minutes ago saying that I want to be able to do everything. And the truth is I'm never going to turn into an immortal vampire. I'm never going to, you know, that's not going to happen. And so I, I have to basically eliminate like almost every career path in the universe, even though I would love to do all of them. And as much as I would love to figure out how to never sleep so I could be even more productive because that's just how my brain works, I have to go to bed. I have to sleep. I have to put things away. You know, I have to, like, if you can believe this, I I actually have to force myself to watch TV and movies sometimes (laughs) because I don't want to because it's not productive. But sometimes I have to force myself to do it because I have to remind myself that I am limited and I should be limited. And the limitations are part of what helps us to grow. So if I can accept my limitations, right? So if I'm the person with a chronic uh, illness or chronic fatigue, if I can accept that as a limitation that allows me to learn some things, then it's not something annoying that's getting in my way. It's actually helping me. And what is it helping me do? It's helping me to learn patience. It's helping me to learn that I maybe have to ask for help. It's helping me to accept uh, my own humanity, my own mortality. Maybe it's helping me focus on only the absolute most important things. I actually think about this all the time. I think like, what if I found out that I was going to die 12 months from now? What things would I eliminate immediately from my life instantaneously because I knew that 12 months is so little that I have to just absolutely carve everything out and cut it out of my life except just a few key things. Chronic fatigue, chronic illness, chronic pain can help you, if you let it, instead of becoming resentful, can help you just shift into hyper-focus mode. i got to put my energy on whatever matters the most. And one of the things I've noticed about a lot of people that struggle with chronic fatigue or illness is that they feel like it's not appropriate or okay to focus on themselves. Okay, Because I think they're worried that other people are going to say, wow, you're so selfish. Why are you putting so much energy into yourself? Why can't you do things for other people like everybody else or whatever it is? And my statement to that is you are extremely important. You can't do anything for anyone else if you feel like you're going to die all of the time. You've got to be able to just carve out time and do things for yourself. And then when those little moments happen, okay, when those little moments happen, when you have, you know, uh, energy, a boost of energy, your motivation's high, um, the fatigue has gone down, you've, you know, you've, you're ready, then don't, you know, don't go crazy. Don't be like, oh my gosh, I got to get it all. I'm going to write six books before I pass out. Just do a little bit, make some progress, you know, keep yourself grounded in reality. Okay. And do what you can and then back off before you've gotten to the point where you're, you're blowing out again. And then you're going to be in bed for six days straight. Cause people do that. They go, it's my window. It's my opportunity. I've got to take it. You know, I think that contributes. So when the window opens, be cautious with it. Be slow. Be careful. One step at a time. You know, Stephen Hawking died uh, sometime in this last year. And for whatever reason, I've often thought about Stephen Hawking. And I, I think about the fact that in order for him to type and to communicate, you know, and he wrote books, he wrote articles, uh, in order for him to communicate he had to go through an excruciatingly tedious process 
And that must have driven, for how smart this guy was, it must have driven him completely crazy that he couldn't go faster and accomplish more. Because, you know, I can only imagine what he would have done had he had full access to his faculties throughout his life. But I can also only imagine how humbling that must have been for him or could have been if he'd chosen. And I don't know his internal working, so I don't know what, what he chose to do with it. But um, how humbling that, that could have been or must have been for him to be able to say, I have to slow down. There's only so much I can do. There are only so many things I can focus on. So I've got to really focus on what, what matters most. So if you can see your limitations as an integral part in your own personal growth and development, and by the way, an integral part in your inspiration status for other people, meaning that if you know those people that overcome limitations or work within limitations are the most inspirational to people, right? Like we're always inspired when we see someone that in spite of or because of their limitations, they do so much or they do or they do only the most important things. Those people are the most inspiring to us. So utilize the limitation, utilize the fatigue as a component of your story that makes your story inspirational to others. If you never end up doing everything that you want, then that actually makes your story more compelling. All right, friends, I hope that was helpful and that was completely different and wild and crazy. And that's probably way closer to my real personality than uh, you're getting in my scripted podcast. So I know there are some of you going, please just do this every time like this. And, and I'm working on it. Uh, I, I, I'm working on just being free flowing and just me and not really worrying about what I sound like on here. Um, so forgive the previous nine podcasts with me being so scripted. We'll just do what we can. And by the way, uh, hang on or stay tuned or however you want to say that for the next episode because I'm going to bring my wife on in future episodes, maybe most of the future episodes that I'm just doing it on my own because I think the dynamic is going to be way more interesting than me just talking at a wall right now. And I also have, and I've started to record some other episodes with uh, my therapist colleagues that work with me. Uh, in our counseling practice. So we've got a lot of cool stuff coming up. Please tell your friends. And uh, again, I'd love for you to uh, subscribe if you haven't already and uh, give me a review, which would be great. Thanks so much. We will talk to you soon.